Welcome back to the On The Table Gaming Podcast. And this week we have a special holiday treat for our Visions in the Flame update. Uh, we're gonna be looking at the recently previewed changes to the A Song of Ice and Fire rulebook, game modes, and looking at the updated preview cards for A Song of Ice and Fire, the miniatures game. And I'm joined by Michael Chanel, the lead game designer. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the on the podcast. Happy holidays, Chase. And yes, good to speak with you again. I can't help but notice we are short a Fabio, though. In keeping with the holiday spirit, Fabio was very naughty this year, received coal and a transfer to uh, the farm. Don't worry, though. You can still send him letters and contact him, but he has no Internet. So any direct communication will, of course, have to be filtered to the company. Fair enough. Fair enough. OK, I guess that was it was one one pun too many last episode. I don't know what you're talking about, Chase. Uh, this is actually a pretty amazing update. So we not only get to see some updated previews of new units for each faction, but we also have the rule book. So maybe we could start in with that because that might give kind of context for everything we're looking at here. The stated goal originally was that you said you wanted to kind of just clean up some things in the rules add a little bit of clarity and uh, maybe walk us through some of these major changes that we'll see here. Well, so as we said in the article, every time we do another version of the rulebook pass, we do, you know, usually a series of minor changes just to clarify wording, clean up some game terms, things like that. So that's the majority of what this is. It's the standard pass that you've seen from, you know, 1.1 all the way up to now. Now, we had, did have some rules modifications that happen here that are similar to the 1.5 changes to that scale. Uh, so we can kind of go down those, I guess, individually and hit the major points of them. Because there aren't that many, and some of them seem a lot bigger and scarier than they are. And some are actually fairly impactful. So, you know, starting off with the bat, you have a whole section here on just clarifying some common game terms. Uh, now you have move and target added as keywords. And also you kind of reworked pivot there. Um, you know, what, what's so significant about that for us as players? Well, so we added moving into the definitions because, you know, while the game was using the standard definition of moving, like anytime something physically moves, that came up a lot as people asking what does and doesn't count as moving. So we added it in here. Uh, target has always been a, uh, a tricky point for people and both newer uh, cards that have come out that have used that term more. It was expanded on here. That really plays more into the overall like, card reworks that we've been doing. As you see, like targeting appears much more defined across the uh, tactics cards, unit cards, and things of like that. And then uh, I believe we did a touch-up to pivot just for some minor wording clarification changing. I don't even remember like what we changed on pivot, so it was some minor rework there. I mean, that's helpful, though, too, because I think while there's a certain level of clarity, a lot of times what we see is like people come into the game from other game systems, and they like bring other game vernacular to this game if you know what i mean and so suddenly you know there's a multiple interpretations of a of a wording because they're basically using like different rule sets and just having it like especially clear in the in the text here i think that really helps just for going forward for clarity to get everybody on the same page here and be like listen like these are the song of ice and fire rules yeah and that's you know the main thing that we're doing through here i mean the the big list of these changes here are just you know, basically sit in structured typographical things that are just, you know, okay, we can clarify this just a little bit because you can read it a certain way. I mean, that's the standard stuff that we've done every time we've done a rulebook revision. What I think we can now focus on is we can actually talk about the things that actually changed, which we did mark out as rules modifications uh, in that article that went up. And I believe there are about five 
major things to talk about that changed that actually have like gameplay was affected by these changes. The first one being um, there is a tactics hand size limit now with five cards at any time. So wow. so that one is actually not as a, that one's situationally impactful. And what I mean by that is that usually in most games, that's not going to come up that often, like uh, for a player to have more than five cards in their hand anytime, unless they've specifically like done something to really force that, like multiple draws off the tactic zone. Right. Um, Night's Watch has the ability to fill their hand up and everything. That's what I came to thought of first is, yeah, Night Watch player, if they went for that kind of particular skew style. And that's the particular uh, strategy or, and I don't say instant because that sounds like, you know, a, like a crime scene style thing. <laughs> but uh, that was the biggest kind of example of that. Um, but this, again, ties into a lot with the um, the new way we've redesigned around tactics cards and things like that, that basically uh, dragon hoarding them in your hand is not a viable option. But now the game rules actually back that up as well by imposing this five card limit. So essentially, if you ever get more than five cards in your hand, you're going to have to discard uh, any excess that you get. Now, again, the amount of um, situations where you will find yourself in in the common plays that will lead you to having more than five cards in your hand are a little rare because that means not only did you have to have your full hand of cards, you had to have the tactic zone and then some other outside effect beyond that that um, caused you to draw cards. So now this is just more about kind of juggling and balancing your resources. You know, if you've got card, if you've got an effect that lets you draw additional cards, then you necessarily don't want to take the tactics zone until you empty some of those out. Or you're specifically cycling through some cards in your hand that are going to cause them to be discarded. This is basically going to open up more kind of tactical thinking and plays rather than let me just dragon horde as many cards in my hand as I can. And then I've got my entire deck or something you know obscene like that. Again, the situations where you would have that many cards was kind of limited to a couple scenarios in the game. I'm talking like, you know, 10 plus cards. But now it's basically just built in here. There is a limit. It seems like it's a big, scary rule that's got that they got put in there. But in practicality, it's not one of the most impactful things here in comparison to some of the others. It hits some very specific scenarios, but in general play, it's not something that's going to come up that often, especially with the new changes. Well, I think what's cool about that is it, this seems like it might have some ripple effects as far as you know certain values in the tactic zone, and and now there's maybe. Uh, more nuance in when you want to take certain things and you maybe don't want to be going for the tactic zone quite as often or like every instance you can scrambling for it because you might already be at your cap there. That's actually the best way I can probably describe this change is that on the surface, it's not going to have any specific big splashes, but it is going to cause lots of ripple effects amongst other things. That's a very good way of wording it. So thank you for that, Chase. Why, thank you, Michael. <laughs> um, Take the compliments. <laughs> I'm going to save that clip and just I'll just have it on my ringtone now. I'll be like, oh. Also talking about disorderly charge. This is another one that's kind of a minor thing. Basically, the old disorderly charge would take place until the end of the unit's action, which then you'd have this little point after the unit activated, but before the turn ended, that would allow for tactics cards to be played. Um, namely, they were ones that would modify things like surge forth or after the attack has been completed, mm -hmm. things that kind of fall in that very specific window. And this is just basically a coverall here that the now until the end of the turn, which this does now create some other scenarios where, say, you somehow have multiple activations in the same turn. This is more punishing for that, but it's something you need to take into consideration there. This was kind of done to streamline gameplay a bit. This was this was basically the, the, the smoothest way of handling this 
Whereas in the current form, uh, it was fine, but it did create some wonky interactions. The new version here, to in the turn, does create some other wonky interactions, corner case scenarios, but they're much less frequent than the other ones. So this was kind of like, okay, well, greater of two evils here, which one do we go with? And then, you know, people have been asking about, will this be coming? Will there be changes to panic? And we see that panic tests are going from uh, failing a test from D3 plus wounds to just being D3 wounds. Yeah, there's been lots of speculation um, over the last few weeks about uh, panic and how it would be modified. And we did hint at it and talk about it in the previous episodes. Um, Fabio specifically, I guess, rest his soul. But <laughs> you know, this is... Just kind of ties in. Fabio is okay. It's not like he's actually. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's just a term that for when they're up on the farm. That means they're getting a lot of rest, and so they can go and play more. They're perfectly fine. <laughs> oh, Everything geez. is fine. Oh my gosh. Okay. There is so, no yeah, war sorry. in boxing today. <laughs> so with panic here, this just kind of ties in with the general like reduction of uh, not damage. Well, yeah. Well, let's go and say that general damage reduction that you're seeing across the board. Like units lost attack dice. A lot of effects that boost, you know, the amount of just raw damage you can deal at any specific time. Those all got cut back, and Panic is just following along with that trend. So instead of being a D3 plus one, it's now a D3, which also has the added benefit of streamlining it just a little bit because now there's no hidden plus one from and just straight D3. Now this is kind of an interesting one here because something I do want to explain from a just design standpoint is that Panic is one of the main sources of damage in the game. It is always meant to be viewed as one of the main sources of damage in the game. A lot of people, uh, you know, when the game launched and everything, they didn't, they didn't like, and I'm actually going to say like they didn't like, because this is a preference, the concept that panic could deal as much damage as an attack. But from a design standpoint, that is, that was kind of the baseline factor is that combat, usually you would lose more guys from running away than you would killing them to a man. So Panic was meant to represent that by dealing you know, a significant amount of damage. It's not Look at all you historical like... gamers out there who are nodding sagely along. See? Michael's <laughs> throwing you guys a bone. Remember to direct all of your uh, concerns about historical accuracy to Michael Chanel at CMON Games. Well, so it's one of those things. Like People will, to this day, will go, well, I only lost one guy from the attack. Why am I losing more guys from the attack right. in Panic? Like, if you saw one guy get brutally murdered, right. yeah, four, four guys <laughs> might run away from seeing that. Like, that's just how that breaks down. But that was always the intent of the system here. Mm -hmm. um, now, with the, the previous version uh, of the things, when we had, you know, higher attack die values, higher boosts to hit and everything, panic was in line with the amount of damage that was happening there. But as we said, uh, we wanted to scale all the damage kind of back in the game. So the lower in attack dice, lower to hits, lower to bonuses. Panic just naturally got um, hit by that as well. But what this also allowed us to do is incorporate more effects that modify panic damage uh, in the game. So like the Lannister Guardsmen that you showed already with the, the Lannister Supremacy. Exactly. Those style of effects where if you were meant to deal damage through panic, you deal damage through panic. Uh, and where it's the actually like take a minus damage. three to their panic test and then take up to plus three wounds. Correct. That is a significant source of damage and is meant to be a significant source of damage. So, but again, this was the change here that happened. You know, there was a lot of speculation over things, how things would or wouldn't change, but uh, this is, again, it was just scaling back the damage the same way we did the attacks. It was nothing, no major overhaul or anything of that nature. But you won't be losing like a full rank now on a, a, a single roll. You're going to need to take at least some damage to at least a wound or have some effect that's going to boost the panic test, boost the panic test to like to do that fourth, that, those four wounds from panic. 
Correct. And that is actually an important distinction is that a panic test on its own cannot remove a rank uh, just by itself. So that means that when you attack, you would have to cause at least one wound to say trigger a panic test mm -hmm. and then you could roll d3 and that could that could in turn remove an entire rank but on its own a test will never force a rank to be removed but that's something else you can play around because now like okay if you're going to crown zap like a full strength unit you know that the amount of damage you're going to cause it is not going to be able to right. reduce it down to a rank which is not going to reduce its capacities in any meaningful way aside from being just lower in wounds but now you have much more effects which we'll get to when we i guess we talked about the uh the units that we previewed here and the previous ones, you have much more effects that can modify your panic damage, your panic rolls, and things of that nature. And then uh, on the summary page, you have uh, some updates to abilities and some of the rules like critical blow and precision. So it seems like these are kind of just getting overworked as a whole. So the attack abilities we removed from the card and instead move them to uh the player aid card and then the rules summary page and this is for critical blow precision sundering and vicious and is that just to kind of free up card space that was fully a reason just to free up card space because each of those effects was taking up two on some cards three lines of text which could be used for either saving space or for actual other abilities plus we already had a keyword system in the form of the condition tokens with vulnerable right. panicked and weakened so because these are so common across the board it just felt natural to move them to that same category and area. Now, I did include in here a, a note here about Critical Blow of Precision because this is like Vicious didn't change, Sundering didn't change, and Critical Blow and Precision were the two effects that always interacted with each other. Right. And we did make a change here um, where, based on the new wording, they do not interact. For critical Blow will cause an additional hit. Precision causes a... Uh, a wound to be generated instead of a hit, but they no longer have the effects where they both trigger on rolls of six. Which, okay. you know, that was, an, that was an intentional, like, wording previously, and we knew that interacting action existed, but again, with scaling back to the amount of, like, just raw damage and things like that, and that includes things that are, like, cause automatic wounds, that was uh, one thing that got hit with that as well. So essentially now you can stack the two if you want, and your rolls of six will generate some really nasty results, such as plus one hit, and then a save, uh, a hit that doesn't allow a save, but it's not going to generate two uh, two hits that do not allow saves. Okay. Uh, but you actually kind of skipped over what I think is probably one of the most impactful changes here, and that's actually the changes to the terrain keywords and the um, assigned keywords to the terrain examples. Now, I'm going to kind of hit those in reverse order because the terrain examples, those are always meant to be used as examples, so people want to customize you know, their own terrain. They can assign whatever keywords you want. But as we know, in the competitive scene, the tournaments, people just kind of default down to using what's in the book. And again, I've, I mentioned this in the past. There's no issue with that. But we did reevaluate the keywords that are linked to each terrain piece to basically, um, I guess we'll say, inspire uh, people to use uh, a different combination of what is there. Uh, but the bigger thing is that we, we looked at all the terrain keywords and some of them got changes just for, again, clarification of wording passes, but some actually had their effects changed to give them either some boost or tone them down a little bit. But uh, basically, we want all the terrain pieces to be viable for different reasons and to actually have impact on the battlefield. And so we really took a look at the terrain keywords and saw, okay, which were the ones that are being overused, which are the ones that are the you know the really dominant keywords that keep coming up, and which ones are pieces that people just don't really pause. So ones like uh, Cover, that one got reworked to be a little more functional in how it works. 
Um, I believe uh, Fortified was slightly modified as well. These are ones that, again, we did kind of like some quality of life changes here. And then we reassigned how we had, uh, or sorry, we rechecked how we'd assigned them out to terrain pieces. So that's going to be another one of those kind of like ripple effect ones that's more impactful than I feel people are going to initially give it credit for. But that's definitely something that I think players should take some time to read and analyze there and see exactly how that changed. Like I know Dangerous, we kept its damage output that it has, so you can lose like a full rank off of charging through Dangerous. Like it's a big deal in the in this situation now more so than it was previously because of the way damage works. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's always been kind of like the unsung heroes of the game was like the terrain. A lot of people spend so much time thinking about like list building and their tactics card combos not realizing just how much like terrain and the keywords on them can really shape the battle. But it's really cool to see you guys going back and do another pass over the terrain itself. Yeah, and again, like when we restructured the way that they're organized through the, uh, the terrain pieces. So now each one has you know, unique things it does that don't necessarily have so much overlap with some other pieces. Because like low walls, hedges, and stakes all kind of did the same thing, just in slightly different ways. Which mm-hmm. okay, I get it because they are just essentially types of walls. But the way we've uh, reassigned out the terrain pieces now, it's like okay, a hedge is giving you you know rough and cover, so that's that's super useful for any type of range you guys to be behind. A low wall functions differently than a hedge than stakes, even though they are similar enough. Absolutely, and I mean this all ties in too with uh, terrain that's going to be used in these game modes that are being updated. And you guys did a pass over a lot of the game modes, and I know maybe in the interest of time, let's do kind of some broad strokes here. But one of the important things is that you have updated the objective cards and the mission cards. Can you maybe speak to some of the changes there? So as we mentioned previously, we have checked over every element of the game, and that's you know from the terrain that we just talked about, from the core rules to all of the game modes, and that includes the objective cards and previously the, the secret mission cards. So again, we, we could have an entire just podcast talking about the game modes, and there are 10 present in the book here. We've taken some of the ones from the beta and some of the ones that were released over the previous um, bit of time that fans liked and everything and worked them into full you know, actual modes here and whatnot. But uh, the important thing is there are some broad strokes to talk about and some changes to game modes, but you, most of these are quality of life changes. So universally, you'll kind of see the deployment zones changed from short, long range to 10 inches. Uh, we found after testing a lot of things that really six, uh, a six inch short range deployment zone was very limiting to a lot of scenarios. And it was basically causing it to be, well, your first round or two are kind of just positioning yourself up into a place where you can then position yourself better. So, and then long range on some just were putting you a little too close to you know each other. So found 10, 10 inches was a good compromise there for a lot of the game modes to give you just that right amount of uh, space, but also, uh, keep you from getting into the f- necessarily just getting into the fight immediately unless you so choose to do so. Uh, so that's one of the ones there. Uh, aside from that, um, a lot of the scenarios are already incorporated into rank play, which is something we talked about we want to expand more on. That's kind of the progenitor to a lot of this is that you've seen that over the last kind of year and a half where most of the scenarios key into units ranks as being important to controlling objectives and meeting those criteria. That was just kind of um, that was expanded on more so with the other units and unit cards and effects. But you kind of saw that first happening with the game modes. Right. Uh, But I suppose the big thing to talk about here is, like you mentioned, the objective cards and the mission cards. 
So the objective cards, they, they function essentially how they previously did before, where they're just going to grant a special power to each objective. We took a look over those, removed some of the more um, oppressive and dominating ones, changed some minor ones around, added some different ones here. Uh, but we actually ended up in some game modes using some very interesting um, interesting ways to use the objective cards, almost as like little mini unit buffs on certain units. Like Clash of Kings, the objective cards are actually used to buff your commander's unit in various ways. Ah, interesting. Okay. So they're, they kind of became multifunctional, where now we can uh, use them to not only just give powers to objectives, but that, and that's a very broad term, objective, but we can now use them in different game modes to grant different effects. Like, and by numbering them specifically, we allow more versatility there. So this actually is a toolkit for anyone that likes creating their own custom scenarios and objectives as well to be able to use those uh, in more broad strokes. They can be like, you know, attach objective eight to this unit and that unit, while they control this, gains precision. Kind of apply like some specific buffs there. Right, because one of the things is also because they're numbered now and everything, you can play around with some very specific ones like we do in some of the game modes where it says take objective cards, you know, two through four, and now you're going to use those for a specific purpose. In addition to that, uh, we had the mission cards, which have replaced the secret mission deck. Uh, one of the changes here we also did is we shrunk those down to the size of mini cards as well. So that's a little more convenient as they might be like taking up table space on the battlefield there. So that's kind of one of those little like quality of life changes. We reduced the number of them down from being a 20 card deck to a 12 card deck. But in the uh, so in every starter box moving forward, there will be two of those decks for each uh, one for each player. And this is something we mentioned in the article as well. But I want to just reaffirm here. These cards are included in the faction update decks as well. So oh, when those okay. packs come out, yeah, you'll get your, your two copies of your mission deck and then your one copy of your objective cards in there as well. So you said that it'll be included in every starter set going forward. So is there going to be new starter sets or just they'll be repackaged? Well, like uh, whenever we reprint starters moving forward, then okay. these will include the updated items in there as well. Gotcha. Uh, and then the Greyjoys include these as well in these. So oh, you're okay, getting those awesome. right in there. So, so literally everybody get Greyjoys. <laughs> You'll be good. Yes. So <laughs> if you want to take that route, Greyjoys, like we've previously said, will be coming out about a it should be about two months, I believe. Q1 before... Uh, Q2. I don't know the exact release dates in between those quarters, but they uh, they will be releasing first. So they will have these cards in there. So, you know, if you're playing someone that has great choice, you'll have everything you need. If and let's, neither let's of you be has... honest, if you're listening to this podcast, you are probably going to be playing Greyjoy or know someone who is. So I think you'll be good. Right. But in the intermediate time, if you if you don't fill into the uh, fill in that category, you can print these off on the website and use these. But the mission cards here. Uh, you'll see that they, again, are mainly the same structure as the previous secret mission cards. But again, we have called the mission cards here. We've removed some of the ones that were previously, um, let's say, imbalanced there. Or, you know, we've re we've done a rebalancing pass on these. And again, we've incorporated them in new ways as well. So you'll see the revamped um, Winds of Winter and Dark Wings, Dark Words. But then they also show up in some other, you know, um, game modes as well, allowing them to be used in various ways. Basically. We took the, the the toolkit that we used to make scenarios and um, these, and we made it a little bit more modular and a little more sandboxy. So if we wanted to try some kind of, 
you know, off the wall stuff or, you know, the players wanted to, you know, make some custom scenarios. Now there's more in that toolkit to be able to do so. That's awesome. And I really like the way that you guys are approaching things in sort of this broader approach where you're leaving lots of room for people to make like fan made community made things. Yeah. Well, I mean like, so making terrain and making custom scenarios, those are arguably two of the biggest like kind of hobby aspect side of things when it comes to war games. You know, people like making custom scenarios, you know, like, I don't know, Christmas themed ones, which we didn't do this year. Um, but somebody's out there has got to make a Christmas themed uh, battle report or battle scenario. I'm sure we'll see something coming out. But then, you know, you have that. You have just the changes to train here and whatnot. And again, there's no single change in the rulebook that I could go over or any of these that I would say, like, yes, this is the defining change of when we're moving to from 1.7 to the 2021 rule set. There's a lot of ripple effect things here. I would say the single biggest one is the change to panic or the tactics cards. But even then, I really don't view those as like, oh my god, this is completely revamped. This is completely earth-shattering to how different this is. This is kind of just a quality of life change. Uh, I just like, I guess when we talk about the units, we can discuss like big earth-shattering changes versus what is kind of just a um a quality of life change. But you know, that's that's kind of how I view this. Like in the rulebook here, even the change to panic, the reduction in damage there, the reduction in overall attack dice, like to hit values. Those are more quality of life updates than they are these like sweeping changes. Like to me, the biggest change we've done since the game's launch was the change from panic in 1.5 from the old system yeah. to the D3 system. That to me is like, that's an actual big major change. Yeah. Like when we, yeah. like when we're talking about unit identities, when a unit's identity completely changes, like I would actually say that the bloody mummer skirmishers, um, that's a little tricky because I would say that we've changed them to what their role was initially envisioned to be. And it's more so a fact of their initial role just didn't do that. So, right. uh, but that, that is, it's like a re-envisioning, but it's more of like a refocusing. <laughs> yeah. So that one's a little tricky to say, because like when I, when I talk about like unit, like revamps and like changes, if a unit basically kept its same role, then you know, that's that's just cleaning up and that's kind of like just refocusing what's doing. That's not like a, a, an overhaul. Actually, I will say, I Chase, uh, I can give you an example of a overhaul that I know we didn't preview here, but Ooh. is one. So I guess you'll get on the table exclusive uh, here. All right. Is talking about Night's Watch. So oh, they're going to say something free book, <laughs> but no, no, sorry. Keep going. <laughs> no, I, I really can't think of anything in free folk that unit wise that had ooh that's going to be a that's going to be a conspiracy node right there oh he said unit wise so that means it's definitely oh, something wait, with wait the used attachment the fact that you uh, stopped yourself there. yeah okay well, I, sorry nice Chase, watch I, go ahead nice i know watch. how i know how the internet works chase <laughs> i've i've spent a little bit of time there um but like night's watch so uh i will say that like the the veterans of the watch they're a unit whose identity uh, I will say actually probably fundamentally changed where in their current mm. role, they were essentially like the tank, like I'm going to go and hold this objective, like, you know, unit for the Night's Watch in the way that they had their three plus defense. Right. They the had counter attack. Yeah, they were a big anvil unit and their role has they still do that, but they don't do it in the same way. And they do it in a different enough way where I wouldn't classify them as the same unit that they were, the same play style of unit. 
Hmm. Uh, now, of course, I say this having, you know, knowing that we're not actually showcasing them in this document and that we're probably not going to be talking about them for a little bit of time. So, you know, I guess that's just like, oh, yeah, these guys change. Trust me on this one, kids. <laughs> uh, I will say out of, you know, it, out of context. Yes, that's a unit that I guess in hindsight, when, you know, in three months from now, when someone's going back and cramming through the backlog of on the table gaming podcasts here, we'll listen and go like, oh, OK, I, I see what they meant there. I will say that probably the single section of the game that received the most changes would be NCUs. And that was mainly to an effort to, one, talk about power balancing with them, two, also define their roles a bit better to what they did. Because uh, we had several cases of, NCUs were a good offender of this, where it's okay to have one that's generically good. Like, Varus does a lot of generically good things. But we also had a lot of NCUs that did a very specific thing very good, but then also generically had some good things they did as well. And NCU should be an important pick. Like, you're taking it for a reason. And I actually even think in some of the previews here, which I guess we can get to when we talk about some of the specific ones, you'll see that kind of double down on like, why am I taking this NCU? Because I need a very specific tool in my army. And this is what they're bringing to the table. And I think speaking of NCUs that you sort of getting a change here in the preview documents you gave us, not only did you include some units and attachments, uh, but you also included some some NCUs. So we kind of got a sense of what some of those changes might look like. Right. So the way we actually set up this document here is that it is entirely based around starter box units. And we showed one attachment, a generic attachment for each faction, uh, one NCU that appeared in the starter box, and then one unit that appeared in the starter box as well. Now, for the armies that have had units previewed already, um, such as the Lannister Guards or you know um, the Stag Knights, those we didn't double down on. So you guys actually got a little bit extra, I guess, for this Christmas compared to everyone else. Um, <laughs> and then in neutrals, we decided, well, because they don't have a starter box, we just showcased off um, just some things we thought were cool. So, Well, let's but jump I guess into that because this is some amazing stuff here. Yeah, I, I guess we can jump into that section. There's a lot to go over here and a lot to cover, but I, I feel this is this is the fun part, right? 2021, these unit changes starting off with Lannisters. So you gave us the guard captain, Cersei Lannister, which is fascinating, and the Lannister halberdiers, which were actually one of the, the units that I know that I saw and was like in love with and, and really sold me on the game. Talking to people like Duncan Rhodes, it was the same thing where he's like, I saw that unit. Oh, my gosh, I had to see more. And they got into the game. So really some iconic stuff here. So why don't we uh, do you want to start off with maybe the attachments and we'll just work attachment NCU unit? Sure. I, I do have to mention, though, that Halberdiers are probably out of the initial release units, probably my favorites. Like once I saw those initial sculpts there and actually saw them on a tray, it was like, yeah, this right? is going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So I actually I have a lot of them. I bought a couple <laughs> in the beginning, too. So now. All right, let's let's get into it. So guard captain. Uh, so they now have iron resolve. The unit gains plus one to panic test rolls and suffers negative one wounds from failing panic tests. So we already see some like interplay into panic with this unit. Very different than the old um, uh, guard captain mechanically in that it would kill somebody to automatically pass a test. Um, what's kind of the thought process behind this? So something you're going to see when it comes to attachments is that they, I don't want to say they've necessarily been boosted in power, but they definitely contribute more to units, um, especially when you start hitting that two-point level. Like a two-point attachment is a big investment, and you're gonna, you will see much more gains for your investment uh, when it comes to them. But something we wanted to do here was 
when you're buying attachments, you'll still see like orders and everything still throughout there. So, you know, I know that there's not a lot of orders that's previewed in some of these units, but you'll still see orders. Orders are still like strong and they're very powerful. Just with attachments, you really want to get your value out of them. And so the guard captain here is a good example of the fact that he's just giving the unit a persistent kind of buff effect here. And you're getting better rolls to your panic and you're suffering less wounds. So I'm taking him for a very specific reason. No longer, you know, he's no longer married to Lannister guardsmen because they're no longer required to pass their panic test to trigger their ability. But you can see the natural synergies here because they're based on ranks. And this guy is about keeping units alive. Yeah. And actually, so like with Lannister Halbadiers as well, you know, they have, they just don't lose their attack profile until that last rank. And so the less damage you take, the less damage that you can, you know, keep from falling to the last rank, the better it's going to be for them. Because in that element of kind of sustain here, which, you know, we did remove a lot of that from Lannisters. And well, in some ways, like we mentioned, the Wealth of the Rock was removed um, as a tactics card, but that was to refocus their tactics deck. You still have elements, you know, throughout the army that's going to give you these little things that are going to help you, you know, survive longer and outlast the opponent, but they just did receive a bigger, stronger push on their on their uh, focus on their panic front. But so here at the guard captain, you see like, okay, I want my guys to survive. And Lannisters, uh, for example, the Mountainsmen, they have. <laughs> see, I'm talking about units that we're not even showcasing here. So you know, I'm just Keep all going. I'm all yes, excellent. <laughs> super chatty here and everything. Happy holidays. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> You know, they're a bunch of rampaging and murderous marauders, and they're bullies. They're going to get bonuses based on outranking the opponents. So keeping them alive while reducing the opponent's ranks, you know, they're going to get extra buffs for that. So that's a play style. The guard captain can, you know, assist in that by making sure that they stay above the ranks of the enemy. Uh, but again, like just by making this kind of a more like just generically useful effect that's going to trigger more than like once around from like the order. You know, you can sprinkle him into a unit, and that unit just immediately now has more sustain. And so it's a valuable addition to any unit. Like Guardsmen, you can see. Lannister Halberdiers, you can uh, see here. The uh, Clegane Mountains men, like I mentioned, they uh, they have benefits to this. And so it's no longer just like, oh, this is obviously the best choice for this unit. It's how do I want to kit out this unit, and what do I want it to do? So that's that's the big thing about attachments, is making their value more apparent. And then, you know, making their abilities kind of not easier to use, but just more impactful uh, over the course of the game. That's fantastic, though. And I think it was maybe Fabio was talking about last time. It's like you get a, you know, a six point unit and you put an attachment on it. Now it's a seven point unit. Like, does it feel like a seven point unit? And it seems like these are really impactful buffs that we're getting that will add to that component. Mm-hmm. And actually, speaking of six point units, I know that we were going to talk about attachments since used. Let's jump down to the Lancer Halberdiers speak about them real quick because this is a good example of kind of what you can expect in a six point unit uh as we mentioned in the previous like uh podcast we talked about with the um the combat math and everything Mm -hmm. um the attack die values are kind of generally being reduced like if you're an elite unit you'll have a three plus to hit but if you're just kind of like a standard unit you know five six points some cases seven points you just have a lot of special abilities then you're not necessarily going to have a three plus to hit so how about ears here have a four plus to hit You'll see that their attack die did actually get reduced, which is funny because we had buffed them up in the 1.6 updates, I believe. Might have been 1.5. No, it was 1.5. They got buffed up to an 8.8.3 profile. Uh, right. Sorry, 8.8.4. Four. And now they've been retracted down to a 7.7.4. But that's kind of in line with the general things that happen across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did get a buff in the uh, set for charge order because it now triggers with their hit from the flanks, not just the front. 
Oh man, nice. So you really got a position to get in behind them or like bog them down, it seems. Right. And so this is kind of one of those pushes that like if a unit does something cool, we want it to do that something cool. Now there's still counterplay here because you can still get into the rear about them or you can still shut off some of their abilities. But the thing is like aside from that effect, they have sundering on their attack and they have an attack profile that doesn't really degrade. Those are two things that are very important to consider, but this unit is kind of based around that ability and it's it needs to be impactful, especially because it's going to trigger once when they get into combat. And then once they're in combat, they're not going to use that ability like perpetually like some other effects do. So it needs to be like something that if you're going to counter it, then you need to really devote resources to it, like by getting their rear or doing something or just being making sure that your unit can actually withstand that initial hit that you're going to mm-hmm. take before you actually get into combat or send some chumps in there to engage them before you send your actual unit. <laughs> so you don't know how, how you'd lead as a force. It'd be like, go my chumps. All right, now let's take care of them. Ah, uh, yes, we shall send the men in there until the enemy is fatigued and then I shall sweep in and slay them all. <laughs> oh man, well, that's awesome. So, and then we're starting to see some like, I think I said that with like the bloody murmurs as well. Like you see some units are kind of, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say like a duelist unit, but like one-on-one, like this unit might do very well. Um, and so you might want to think about now, like, you know, how do you allocate your resources to deal with this or or, uh, you know, it gives you some interesting counterplay challenges or decisions to make. Right. And that's the main thing is like basically creating interesting counterplays between abilities and opponents. We don't want it to just be like, OK, well, I can just do this and completely cancel this out. I mean, you should have those moments where like, yeah, some things are going to counter some things, but it should be like a risk versus reward or resource mm-hmm. management style thing of like, how much am I willing to devote to get past this problem? Well, then speaking of resource management for Cersei Lannister, um, she looks, I might say, quite different than she did in the original uh, starter set version. Um, and so her playing the game, she starts with two order tokens now. So that's a resource in itself that we're seeing a little bit. And then when Cersei claims a zone, you get to basically remove an order token, if you wish, to do one of two options. So if you claim the crown, you get to search your tactics deck or discard pile for hear me roar and add it to your hand. Or if you control the wealth zone, you can search your tactics deck or discard pile for one subjugation of power card and add it to your hand and shuffle your tactics deck. So uh, one important thing here to note, Chase, is that that's not a choice. That's actually a dual trigger there. If you control crown, you get to search for hear me roar. If you control wealth, you get subjugation of power. If you control both, you're doing both of those effects. Well, that's way more powerful. So if you have a setup here where you claim both zones, then you get both of those cool effects, or if you need just one at a time. Now, I know that a lot of people are going to lament the loss of you know old Cersei here, but the reason why is because Lannisters have just... Uh, again, we refocus themselves them on the panic damage they have, and they have a lot, and I mean a lot of tools at their disposal through their tactics cards, through attachments, and through units to cause negatives to panic tests. Cersei just kind of lost her place uh, in the new world, I guess, because she basically just doubled down on things that the faction already had plenty of options to do. And so while that was fine, it became evident that like, well, there are other more interesting effects from NCUs that I can take. I don't necessarily need to take Cersei because I already have plenty of things that are causing negatives to panic. But more than that, it basically it fell into two mindsets when it came to Cersei, when it came to like our testers and our player base that we had looking at it, was either they would always auto-include her because they wanted to just completely hammer down the 
I'm going to cause as many negatives to you as on panic as I can. Or they didn't see a need to take her because they had so many other options available that could cause panic um, negatives. And while that is fine in itself, we figured that, like, well, if that's going to be the case, we can probably do something a little bit more interesting with her. So what she allows you to do now is she allows you to do some card cycling limited amount of times per game for one of uh, actually two of the most powerful like Lannister cards. I would argue to say that they're pretty much all powerful, but uh, these two especially. Hear Me Roar is largely unchanged from its previous version, so it's the one that causes your panic negatives. So her effect is essentially still there. It's just built into her fetching Hear Me Roar instead of just innately doing it herself. And then you have Subjugation of Power, which is their card that allows you to just straight up shut off unit abilities and whatnot. Yeah. So if that's your play style, Cersei more will allow you to... Yeah, so Cersei will allow you to just cycle that card. So you'll have access to that card more often. But this also brings up counterplay, where if your opponent is really tired of that happening, they can claim wealth or they can claim crown to stop these effects and limit Cersei's you know, actual um, impact. So this also opens up some elements of counterplay here, where you know there's strategic options your opponent can do to block your effects. Like, man, I really don't want them to have a Hear Me Roar. I'm going to take the crown here to prevent her from getting that effect. Or, you know, I, I can force, foresee this play where they're going to try the subjugation to power me. So let me go ahead and take the wealth here to prevent that from happening. Oh, man. I just feel like you're, yeah, it's keeping the theme, but it's adding like this other layer of choice and counterplay. Um, I, I know I keep saying that over and over again, but I really love the interplay here. And this is just looking at like Lannisters. Yeah, so we've hit all one faction out of seven. Well, let's keep going. Let's, let's plow ahead here. So Starks uh, with our Umber champion here. So long time, cool sculpt. We're wearing the big like bear skin on him. Um, now has the order in sight. When this unit is performing a melee attack before rolling attack dice, this attack gains vicious and rolls its highest attack die value. Insight was just uh, changed from an order uh, because, uh, sorry, changed from its previous version as an order to now it's just a straight buff here. And this is kind of tying in lot what I was saying earlier, where if you're paying the points and investing into an attachment, you're already investing resources into doing that. So the old Insight having a, a, a negative built into it, you know, that's been removed now. And now it's just a straight buff. Does he go into every single unit? No, but he contributes to most every unit he's in, especially the Umber Berserkers that we're showcasing. Yeah, man. And I could see kind of the, the synergy um, with the Umbers right off the bat, but you could probably fit him in many units. Oh, yes. And he is one of the only sources of Vicious in the entire Stark army because they don't really deal a lot in panic damage. They actually do have like a generic tactics card that gives them access to that little toolkit. But if you want to really lean into that aspect of it, then the Umber Champion is your go-to. And then, of course, attacking with your highest value attack die, the Starks function best when they're at the lowest ranks which usually means that they're also pitching their lowest value attack die, he completely mitigates that. But he ties in well, as you said, with the Umber Berserkers who we're showing here. Now, these guys, uh, I actually classify these guys here as receiving a pretty major kind of change to what they do because, uh, and it's a little tricky because some people are going to look at this and go like, yeah, they, they kind of fill the same role. And they do, but they have changed pretty drastically in my mind compared to previously what they were. Uh, whereas before you had this big elite seven point unit that was hitting on a three plus that gained a colossal number of attack die that had sundering built in. And, you know, they were just super fast and nasty. They still are all those things minus the sundering bits, um, but they've been moved down to six points and their stats adjusted slightly to make them kind of more of a, um, I don't want to say core infantry, but basically give these Starks a little bit more of a curve over what tools they had available at what point levels. Just to be so, clear, though, you're, you're, they dropped their attack dice profile. But if you're looking at this being like, oh, my God, they lost so much dice. 
they're still like kind of above the curve on most of the other units we're seeing here. Like these still are pretty, they're a very heavy damage output unit. Just have one of the highest attack die profiles in the game, period. Just they're trading that for being a little squishy on the armor and the morale front. Uh, their morale did take a small hit. Uh, their to hit value gained a small hit in the fact that now they gain plus with a hit for each of their destroyed ranks. So they start worse. And at yeah, last on, rank, though, yeah, they're, they're hitting better. on twos with nine dice. But they don't have Sundering anymore. They're basically meant to like cut through like your... The, you would send these guys after a unit that has like average to poor defense. Yeah, these are your free folk mulchers. How dare exactly. you? Exactly, <laughs> they're your free folk mulchers. Whereas like conversely, like... The, uh, so one of the changes here that we did this was because they were competing with the same army role as like the great axes. Great axes are meant to be your your I'm going to deal with heavy defense and heavy armor style unit, but the berserkers were arguably doing that same role just in a not even that different way. So they were really conflicted there. So now the great axes have been like more of a focus on you need something to punch through heavy armor. That's what you got great axes for. Okay, you need well, guys that's who exciting. are just gonna... right because that was a faction unit that I think always was like working really hard to find its place and the great x's have definitely like ebbed and flow in this game's history but this is a cool <laughs> chance to find them have a to have them finally have their like their niche that works for them right and now they're not competing with the berserkers the berserkers are just they're just gonna throw a ton of dice at you and they're gonna do it very like uh, a I don't say, <laughs> yeah i don't say precisiony because we have the effect that says precision and nine dice at a two plus is a scary scary profile yeah. and the fact that when they're reduced down to that rank they're essentially suffering almost no damage from panic because of their unyielding rule. Mm, yeah, it's true. Okay. So on their last rank, they're still terrifying. And then you factor in like, I'm going to throw a number champion to these guys for seven points. And oh. now my last, and now at any point in their lifespan, they're throwing nine dice with vicious because of the Umber champions uh, in sight order. And Sansa looks like she's been, she's been studying her game. Uh, and so she's she's seeing a little bit of a change here as well, having those orders show up on her. And now, is this a thing we're going to see on a lot of NCUs is order tokens being applied? Uh, so a lot of uh, NCUs that had once per game effects, you will see that now some of them still have those once per game effects, but a lot of them were kind of uh, rebalanced around giving them slightly toned down effects, uh, but being allowed to use them multiple times per game via the order tokens or some of those reworks there. Like I said, uh, out of most of the things that change, NCUs probably received the most. And this is kind of an example here where Sansa was reworked here a bit to, but essentially now, like you take Sansa when you want to re, you know, do some tactics card recursion here, which is a very strong effect because you're getting back resources that you previously used before. Um, but before she would be able to search your deck or discard pile once per game. Now she can only pull back from the discard pile. And um, yes, it is a zone replacement effect, twice per game but again that's any zone so now she actually becomes a little bit of a counterplay uh unit for starks where let's go back to previously like i spoke about lannisters say you wanted to block off them taking crown or the wealth zone or whatnot but you really don't want those effects like starks don't care about the crown they, they really don't but now sansa you're at least not going to feel like you know you're having to take an effect that you don't want just to block it you can take sansa here and go like okay i'm going to take the crown block you from getting this effect but i'm gonna get my own cool effect here as well so there's a contingency that you built in. And frankly, that entire interaction that I just explained to you also sounds so fitting to the setting here where it's like, oh, Cersei was going to do this crown play and Sansa was like, oh, wait, no, I've seen previously how people do this. So I'm just going to wander over here and do that instead. Absolutely. And Sansa Stark's little bird has been a has been a, a popular character for a long time. And I still think she's got she's got that edge here. 
Yeah, I mean, you've got a lot to recoup from after, you know, having a dire wolf that's completely dead in all ways, shape, and forms, you know, RIP lady, hashtag. Uh, oh, you went there. This is supposed to be a holiday episode, Michael. We're going to lift people's spirits. What are, you, what are you doing? I think wolf pelts are very, like, you know, festive. Oh, my gosh. Someday, I'm just saying, someday there's got to be, like, a, a giveaway, like limited edition Sansa sculpt with a lady or something. Oh, I was going to say we could get one of those Ikea rugs that they used to make the Night's Watch cloaks and send those off to someone as a wolf pelt. But oh my God, this is getting too sad. Let's let's segue to Night's Watch then. <laughs> so Night's Watch then. We got our watch captain, Jor Mormont, and the Sworn Brothers. And so it's it's a little tricky to talk about Night's Watch without also talking about the vow mechanics that we talked about in like the previous article about tactics cards because they're such an integral part into how the watch functions so i guess the the thing to preface this with is like the way vows work is that they you can now stack them onto a unit so you can have multiple vows on a unit as the game goes on these units are just going to get scarier and deadlier as they start doing stuff across the battlefield and accumulating more vows so this is really playing into the elite nature of the night's watch army you know they have a lot of expensive units but those units are gonna get they start scary and they just get scarier as the battle goes on and the watch captain is terrifying here so this is a three-point attachment now with relentless starter friendly turn this unit performs one attack or maneuver action do not activate a unit this turn or gaining an additional uh attack or maneuver action uh, throughout the course of the round. So effectively, a unit's getting two, uh, two actions on the round because it gains normal activation and it's able to do a bonus attack or maneuver action throughout the course of the round as well. Oh my gosh. And boldness and courage, each time this unit attacks, it has full, if it has full ranks, it gains plus one attack die. Otherwise, it's treated as having plus one rank for attack die. So seeing that, uh, you know, hefty three points for a really strong ability. Yes. And so something else I want to point out is that Night's Watch attachments, uh, the Watch Captain is by far the most expensive one they have, clocking in at three points. But that is because he is giving you Relentless, which is essentially doing two things. It's giving you a bonus action for the unit that he's on, but it's also giving you essentially another activation because you're able to, you know, use this if you to get a maneuver or an attack in, in lieu of activating another unit. So like, for example, Sigmund Sworn Brothers, you have a 10-point unit, but it's not just a 10-point unit that's really scary and nasty. It's a 10-point unit that's two activations throughout the round. So, you know, you're going to have, technically, you can have less units on the table than your opponent here, but you'll have the same number, if not more, activations if you're sprinkling watch captains throughout them. But oh, man, I will say fantastic. that... Right. That's, that's crazy. Wow. But I, I do want to stress that, like, comparison to most armies, Knight's Watch attachments are going to be the best value for... Uh, what you're going to see. And this is also where the uh, you the cross-faction comparisons really break down that, you know, again, we strongly have always said this, you can't compare effects across faction because I know there are several examples of one-point cost Night's Watch attachments that have just some abilities that are sprinkled across other factions and then more abilities on top of that as well. So you're going to look at the two and go like, why is this one only one point? And this one is the same point but has another effect on top of that. It's because they're in Night's Watch. Uh, the way they function, the w- what they contribute to that army and the way it functions is different. Because say you had like an attachment that's in, an, in another army that had access to, you know, uh, four, five, six point units or whatnot, that spread, that has to be accounted for of all their attachments. Night's Watch, uh, they have very elite units and then they've got very specific in conscripts, some, you know, very cheap units. 
And then, of course, we've got Gior Mormont, the old bear, with duty to the realms of men. Each time Gior claims a zone, choose one, target two friendly knights to watch combat units, move one friendly attached tactics card from one of those units to the other, which is awesome. Or you could elect to choose, replace that zone's effect with search your tactics card or discard pile for one tactics card that can be attached to a unit and attach it to a friendly knights watch unit. Shuffle your tactics deck. So you can just like pull it right out and put it on the board. Right. And so that second effect is not going to be used nearly as much as that first one. I mean, that's, and that's, you know, we knew that and that's the design there. Um, because usually you're going to want to play the tactic card from your hand to get the effect and then attach it to a unit. But say you need that really like clutch play to like, and I really need this buff, or more importantly, I need to take a zone from my opponent, but I don't necessarily want the zone effect. Again, mm-hmm. showing off that kind of counterplay thing, you have an option with Jor to do that. Now, Jor here had to be uh, reworked you know, almost entirely because of the way the vow mechanics changed. It's because the old vows were limited to one per unit and were usually tactic zone reliant. Well, that means the watch captain, his old effect didn't work because he, he removed the limits from uh, from both of those. Well, if those don't exist anymore, then he wasn't doing anything. So he had to get reworked. Jor kind of fell under the same category there where he was playing off the old bow system that got overhauled and he had to be reworked now as well. So these are examples of units that like, or sorry, attachments and NCUs that got completely overhauled because of not so much like gameplay balances or whatnot, but because the way their me- the, the the mechanics that they played with changed, and then the actual sworn brothers themselves, the kind of the backbone of the Night's Watch, we see them with their Order Martial training and their greatsword, as usual, having it sundering. Now, just a nice little keyword, leaving lots of uh, room for space on the on the card. Well, they also lost critical blow off of the greatsword, and that is critical blow still exists in like a, a lot of units and a lot of places, tactics cards and things, but it has been cut back a little bit on baseline units because it is one of those kind of explosive abilities that like it's it kind of creates a die roll and luck dependent thing which is fine like again i've got nothing against critical blow i remember seeing some people that were thinking that it would be removed entirely because it created math curves that exist outside the normal spectrum which is true but um no that it's, it's obviously still here but we did remove it from the sworn brothers here as basically part of their you know again the overhaul and like just looking at how much damage potential they had but they traded that for martial training, which is allows them to just straight up reroll attack dice and make the opponent vulnerable. So these guys can attack you with sundering and cause you to be vulnerable. They're going to just slice through any armor they come across, just like a hot longsword through butter here. And that gives them a very clear, defined role in the Night's Watch. And that's essentially how a lot of their units are going to function, is that they have a very clear role. This is what they do. And they do it very well, arguably better than a lot of other units in the game. So you want, you know, your sword in the darkness that's going to pierce through the enemy armor and just deal consistent high damage. That's what you have your Sworn Brothers for. You want your guys who are going to be your objective holders. And I, I we kind of briefly talked about this earlier, but not so much of a tank unit, but more just a disruption and hold objectives unit. You've got your veterans of the watch for that. You want your harassers and your skirmishers that are, you know, meant to go and disrupt enemy plans and just create a giant pain in the ass situation. You have your hunters for that. So it sounds like this is also a cool opportunity to expand upon the Night's Watch themes that were already pretty developed, but kind of reinforcing the roles within the different subgroupings. Right. And that's before you factor in the vows, which are going to continuously start buffing your units as the game goes on. So like a Sworn Brothers unit 
that survives until, you know, round five or six that's got, you know, like four or five. I mean, let's let's say that they have like four or five vows on them. That's going to be a scary, hard to kill unit. So the whole thing about Night's Watch is that they played the longer game and an opponent that's playing against them. You need to really hammer down and focus on units. And, you know, you can't spread your wounds across the battlefield. You you cannot. There's very few units that are going to be able to stand toe-to-toe with a Night's Watch unit that's been fully decked out. You're going to have to devote resources to taking them out. But that's the trade-off for them, you know, potentially having a lower number of unit count or a lo- lower number of activations. Because, like, going back to, like, the Sworn Brothers example here, you could deck these guys out with a Watch Captain and have a scary 10-point unit that's activating twice around. That's going to be a scary 10-point unit that's activating twice around. But once it's taken off the battlefield, it's going to be a major blow to the Night's Watch player. But it shouldn't be an easy thing to accomplish. And then moving into Free Folk, um, maybe starting with the unit here. Wow. Free Folk Raiders have gone from three points up to four points. But they've gained a lot of other elements that kind of mix in. So they still have Insignificant. Their attack profile actually went up on their last rank. They lost Gang Up. And they now have this thing called Cowardly. This unit suffers plus two wounds from failing panic tests. So they, uh, their interplay with panic is, is, is much more severe now, now because these are kind of your, like your chaff units, right? And then most interestingly is they have this keyword now, adaptive, which you reduce the cost of one attachment in this unit by one. So kind of what's, what's going on here? What was the idea or behind the, the vision for Free Folk Raiders? I mean, I don't really think any of your viewer base really is that big of a free folk fan here chase so I think that's okay i'll make just... up for it <laughs> are you sure i think we can really just skip over these guys no, we can probably what? just move this on this is crazy doc we have i mean yeah good grief okay so adaptive now <laughs> i'm just still stuck there was it was a coordinated plans coordinated tactics coordination tactics there was a, the tactics card you sure we could move attachment abilities with it you can move unit abilities around so uh, until the end of the turn, uh, units basically would share abilities. And of course, that applies to attachments as well as all attachment abilities originate from the unit. Right. So here, like gang up. Well, first off, you have free ball raiders. I, uh, I got too which, excited. I jumped in. Let's, yeah, let's do it slowly. Here we go. Oh, no, no. I was just, I was, I was very content to just let you, like, no, Chase, just break it down for us here because I could tell. Even when we were talking about watch, you're just like, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever. Come on, come on, come on, move on, move on, move on. Next slide, next slide. <laughs> but so Raiders here, like Free Folk are your horde army. They, uh, every one of their units, you know, is not the best individually, but it's the sum is greater than the, uh, the, the individual pieces. So here you have Free Folk Raiders who have lost their restriction of being having, having to be fielded in pairs. So people that buy, you know, Free Folk Raider boxes now won't have feels bads of like, I need two of these boxes. So you can run just a single unit. Um, but these guys here are one of the cheapest units in the game. When you factor in like adaptive, they're essentially a three point unit that gives you a, uh, a free attachment, which is a big deal because as we talked about, attachments really do contribute a lot to, you know, the, the overall units. A raid leader here is one example. If he's got gang up where this is an effect that's not only benefiting the unit that is engaged with it, or sorry, the, the unit that he's attached to, but every friendly unit that is also engaged the same target because it allows everyone to get plus one to hit and plus one attack die if you're engaging with multiple units. Which is huge. That's like elite status now, like three plus to hit. Well, getting the plus one to hit and plus one attack die are two of the rarest effects that you're going to see in the game. And then you have the raid leader here who is just throwing it across, you know, throwing it on, you know, on every unit he wants, willy nilly, whatever here, and turning your free folk raider unit into a three plus 
attack die, sorry, a, th a three plus to hit profile of seven attack dice at max ranks, assuming you're ganging up here. And that's crazy for even a five point unit, much less a four point unit that's sitting there. But the trade off is that these guys explode the second someone looks in the wrong way <laughs> because they have that five plus defense, which, you know, is actually not terrible. I mean, it's not a six plus, right? But then you've got the morale value of eight plus and cowardly. So, you know, this is showing the, I guess, flipping on the Lannister side of things. This is just showing the, um, you know, the opposite end of that spectrum where you can have effects that deal additional panic damage, but you can also have some effects here that are negative to you. So like crown zapping these guys, you have to go back to Starks. You know, Starks don't really care about the crown zone, but these guys suffer plus two wounds from failing panic tests. So all of a sudden, like, you know, crown zapping these guys becomes a lot more attractive. It's like they're only passing, sorry, you know, they, they have a nine plus morale and are suffering, you know, a D3 plus two wounds from failing. That's that's all of a sudden pretty in, you know enticing to do. I just love the fantasy of it too, though. Like the idea that like free folk raiders on their own, they're nothing special. It all depends on like who's leading the raid. Like who's the raid leader party? Uh, who's the raid leader of, of that group? You know, and and so then exactly. that group has its own flavor. So you really do have like that horde, like call the banners, and like each group shows up, but they've got like a kind of a different feel. And like, well, that group's being led by you know so and so two tusks from wherever, and this guy's got you know, and it's like, oh wow. Like uh, this is the Walrus Clan Raiders here, so you yeah. Know, we, and the thing is, the attachments are are defining this unit and giving it its specialization here. So like, you stick a Walrus Clan Chieftain in here, all of a sudden these guys are big and bulky and have just an obscene ability to absorb hits. You stick a Champion of Bone in there, and all of a sudden these guys are actually really scary when it comes to like you know panicking the opponent and and whatnot. You stick a Raid Leader, and these guys become. Like kind of generic support here, but that's that's fine because you just have a raid leader yeah. guy there. Uh, and this is not even talking about like the characters. Ain't nobody gonna be complaining about having a raid leader in their army. <laughs> like, this guy's helping us all out. Like, yeah, you're cool, right? And so you know th these that unit is going to be defined by the attachment you take. And as you see with just even the one free folk card that we have previewed, uh, that actually has much bigger ripple effects in the entire army because. All of a sudden now, having that attachment, giving an ability here is something that you can now spread across the rest of your guys and group up and give them the benefit as well. But at the same time, they're like one of those like children's like 80s villains where it's like they have like that one weakness. And you're like, it does this cool thing. But like if you just punch it hard, it stops. I'll get you next time, Rob. <laughs> next time. So then we got Lady Val, the wildling princess. When Lady Val claims a zone, you may replace that zone's effect with one friendly combat unit performs one maneuver or retreat action. If they retreat one enemy they disengage from becomes vulnerable. Right. So Val here is an example like where she remained largely the same, but got a small buff and a points increase. Uh, for the astute readers out here, you might be noticing a trend here in some situations, but I'm not going to get into that. But so Val here, uh, you see there's actually a little bit of um, stealth clarification here, whereas her previous effect was she would replace the effect of with the effect of the maneuver zone. Now, instead of having to cross-reference that, her replacement effect is just very blatantly like printed on here, but that also removes the uh, question that would come up of like, oh, well, does that have anything to do with me controlling the zone, or if I'm replacing the effect of the maneuver zone with something else, can Val trigger that? All that kind of ambiguity of those corner case scenarios from readings is just gone because she very clearly is just replacing that effect with one that is completely unique to her. It just happens to 90% of it be shared with the effect of an existing zone but then again she also has the added benefit of when they do uh, disengage she does throw down that vulnerable token so there's a little bit more um a little bit more play here to just her old effect when she moved from three to four points 
It lets you set up some cool combos. I like it. And so on her, you know, you see that, as we said, we're taking her for a very specific reason. If you want the extra mobility added to your army, say you're employing some hit and run tactics with some spear wives and a spear wife matriarch and that style of army with like Harma, then Val is going to be your natural fit. Or even if you have like kind of a tankier army, like running a bunch of thins and you want to start like taunting people across the battlefield, Val is giving you another piece to that, like uh, that toolbox of yours versus some other armies. Like if you're just going to like spam raiders, there's probably not a lot of reason to include her in your list. So again, it's just giving some army roles and functionality to things to like, this is, this is why you take this unit because they're giving you a specific tool and not necessarily just because they're generically good or powerful. And then looking at the Baratheons, oh my gosh. So we saw already the Stagnite's rework. Looking at the Stagnite Noble, we got a two-point attachment. So he's losing that uh, Reckless Vengeance order they used to have, where they like suffered wounds to make an attack. And now they have Iron Resolve, which reduces the amount of damage they take from failing panic tests and boost the morale and go down fighting where each time uh, rank in this unit is destroyed, an enemy they are engaged with suffers a wound and stubborn tenacity. Each time this unit passes a panic test, one enemy they are engaged with suffers a wound. This is a two point, two point uh, attachment, but we're kind of seeing that sort of spread of abilities now on the more expensive attachments. Like it's cool. That's quite a lot. These guys are pretty tanky when you put them, especially in like a, a Stagnite unit. So there's two things to factor in with the Stagnite Noble is one, uh, as you said, he's an expensive two-point attachment. Uh, but he is giving you just a ton of abilities here that are playing off of your panic tests. But more importantly, these effects are all causing wounds. And usually across the board, the amount of just things that deal straight wounds has been cut down. Uh, so here you're paying a premium for not only that, but multiple instances of that and abilities to trigger that with Iron Resolve. Now, the old effect that he had um, of Reckless Vengeance, that fit in perfectly with the Baratheon playstyle of, you know, OK, you're going to hit me, I'm going to hit you back. But it kind of fell into the the other thing we talked about, which was free actions and limiting those uh, a little bit in the game. Uh, of course, free actions still exist, you know, across like tactics cards and some abilities. But in general you are tending to have, they, they're coming a bit more of a premium. So with the Stagnite Noble, actually his old design fit very well in line with the current changes to the game and everything, but it wasn't really quite hitting out at two points. One point it was showcasing to be a little too good. So we just decided to take him back to the drawing board and uh, redesign him you know, into his current form here to really fit that whole Baratheon mentality of, oh, you're going to do something nasty to me? Well, I'm going to make you pay for so that's that's the embodiment that we have here. And yeah, you, like you said, you can stick him into a unit of Stagnites. They become a 10-point unit that gets stronger as the game goes on, is much more resilient. And now, even if you get past that resiliency, they're going to punish you for that as well. And yet, it's also a 10-point unit. Yes, it is. It's an investment. <laughs> You're definitely paying for it. But man, that is some scary stuff. Baratheon Sentinel. So we can see them a little bit more, I think maybe it's say more mobile, that order Sentinel they have after a friendly unit in long range is attacked. The unit performs one charge or maneuver action. If charging, it must target the attacker and they still have their, their double hammers with sundering. Uh, despite having a decreased attack profile, like that seems like they're going to be able to zip around the board. These are pretty fast for Baratheons. So, and that is an excellent point that for Baratheons, this is a very mobile unit in an army that is not very mobile on its baseline stuff. But here with the Sentinels is another example of a six-point unit. And you see those stats kind of reflected here. If you're four plus to hit, they've got a, a good attack die profile that doesn't really degrade that much. Their defensive stats are uh, on the good side across the board right here, but they have the extra mobility from Sentinel. 
the issue that Baratheon, uh, th- this unit had previously, was they just didn't really have any kind of flair about them. They were a fine workhorse unit. Uh, they did get a bump to their morale here uh, to give them a little bit more sustain. But previously, uh, they did lose the three plus to hit. But um, so again, that's in line with the the overarching changes here. But if we had not given them Sentinel, they would have been a perfectly salvageable like unit here. But they really just wouldn't have been anything like, okay, why am I taking these guys? They've got Sundering, but I can find that elsewhere. They've got a decent like movement, armor, morale, attack die profile. It's all fine. But they didn't like, why am I taking these guys? That question still was not being answered. And that's why they gained Sentinel. I will also admit that, you know, it the fact that these are Baratheon Sentinels and they didn't have the Order Sentinel, okay, that that's <laughs> that might have played a part in it as well. It just happened to really <laughs> fit their role in the army of like, okay, we're reactionary, you're going to hurt our guys, we're gonna come after and so this gives them a clear defined like role in the army. They're an offensive unit, but they also serve the role of kind of like that guardianship of you're going to get locked in combat for other units if we play things correctly. And if you attack them or you damage them, the Sentinels are going to come and punish you for it. Cool to have that sort of diversity now in your list building as far as like, you know, uh, compensating for the lack of movement with a unit like this. So they've got some options here. And this is also another unit that at six points, they're not so much of an investment that, you know, it's like, man, they're not, they're, they're the mid-range unit. So I can look at some uh, attachments and stick in there to really modify what their role does. Right. The Stagnite Noble that we're showcasing here is probably not the best example here. Because you could stick him in there and it would make them an eight-point <laughs> unit. Uh, it's a nice set of abilities, but it wouldn't be my first pick right. to put in there. And we, uh, we're we not going to get into like which attachments can and can't go in there. But they're versatile enough because their stats are fairly vanilla across the board. Then you can kind of kit them out to their role. And then they've got the extra little bit of mobility to get and set up the plays they need to with that order sent. And then Shira Errol, the, the infamous or famous, I guess I should say, Lady of Haystack Hall who is now famous when she claims the crown restore one wound to one friendly combat unit. When she claims the tactic zone on the tactics board, remove a condition token from one friendly combat unit. And when she claims the wealth zone, if you remove a token, place one token of that type on one enemy combat unit. So a little bit more versatility there as well in her options. Right. So she went from three to four points here. Uh, she gained the effect though, where if she claims the crown, she can restore a wound to a friendly unit. And the crown effect being central to Baratheons is that's one of their main zones that they want to take. So for her, you know, you're rewarded for taking that zone. Uh, so when you look at her like wealth claim ability, it used to be placing any token. It's been slightly limited now. So it's you're removing a token of that type and you are uh, placing that same type of token where that is just technically a nerf to how that ability works. But you're paying for the versatility in here. The fact that she has bonus effects that just trigger off of three separate zones, two of those three zones being core to Baratheons with the third one potentially being important as well, depending on your commander option here. So here, you know, you're paying a little bit more for her versatility, but you're getting some like consistent effects that are, you know, taking place here. And, you know, yes, she is very infamous. And I will just say that like, when Winds of Winter finally releases, all the Shira Errol fans are going to be like, oh my god, I, I didn't even know that turns out that she is the Night's Queen. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's spoilers for... Oh, uh, you hat, know, spoiler, the next spoiler. Book. Good gosh. All right. Sorry, we, spoilers. We spoilers. Shira Errol, hashtag Night's Queen. Um, but... <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. If, uh, Jim Ludwig, I wonder if he signed off on that. We'll have to see if that's uh, that's official. Now we got House Targaryen and we've got the Screamer Co. Uh, one point and it may be only attached to Targaryen units. So we're keeping those Dothraki with their uh, with their squads there. With the, it's got the Order Martial Training. When this unit performs a melee attack before rolling attack dice, 
This attack may re-roll any attack dice and the defender becomes vulnerable. Right, so this is the previous effect that we saw on the uh, the Sworn Brothers. And it is the same effect that you'll see on the, uh, the Sworn Sword Captain for the Starks. Uh, but the very important distinction here, this is going on cavalry, and that means Dothraki. Uh, so... The unfortunately with the targs here, you're kind of having a little bit of a hodgepodge over what you're what you're seeing here. But um, so like the screamer co, you take him and you stick him in a unit of screamers or veterans, and it's giving you some more sustained options for when you get into combat. Because like the Dothraki, especially the screamers, they are based around that kind of alpha strike. They're gonna you know hit you really hard in that first hit, but once they get locked into combat, that's where they kind of suffer a little bit. And you stick a co in that unit all of a sudden that no longer becomes a thing because now they're in combat. They've got a very impressive attack profile uh, for their point costs. And now you have an, a, the ability here to just straight up reroll your attacks and make the defender vulnerable. So it's almost like every single, like you're going to get your initial charge in there. It's going to be very impactful. And then after that, if you get locked into combat, if you have a co in there, you're just as deadly then as you were on that charge. So you actually gain a huge amount of sustain with your uh, Dothraki cavalry yeah. just by including this guy. You wouldn't want to face them, Michael, on a, on an open field. On an open field chase. <laughs> that right, has to got- be one of my favorite, just like <laughs> anything in the series. It's just that little exchange. Uh, we'll work our way up to the, the big Targaryen piece here. So let's go jump over to Mopatis. We'll save the best for last here. Um, so Ilrio, he now has Ilrio's boon, where each time Ilrio claims a zone, you may replace that zone's effect with target one friendly combat unit. They restore three wounds. One enemy they are engaged with becomes weakened. So it's no longer that once a game effect right so elio here is an example of was the was the free action bit now granted you had to pay resources and there were some stipulations across getting that free extra activation but especially in the new just basically uh formatting of things i can only find so many synonyms to talk about like you know the, the the changes that we've made he uh that ability was not really fitting well here removing activations and giving extra full activations to things is probably one of the rarest things that you will see in the game. And so it just really wasn't fitting here. So this is another one here that we redesigned from scratch from the ground up. And with the Targaryens specifically, each of their units, uh, they don't have a lot of synergy amongst themselves with very rare exception. They're just individually powerful units that are brought together really by the commander. As we talked about in the previous tactics article, each of their commanders has four tactics cards as opposed to the normal three to really push that army theme home. Like, again, running um, Khal Drogo, you're going to have this Mongol, like, you know, Dothraki horde just charging across the battlefield. That's going to play very different from one that is uh, an army that's led by Barristan Selmy, who has a lot more knightly kind of defensive tactics here. And so your unit variety and choices are going to be vastly impacted by that. Now, that's true of like any commander for most armies, but it's it's doubled down with the Targaryens because of how their units function as well. You know, Lannisters, they'll have synergy between attachments and units. Uh, same thing with most of your other armies. But like here with the Targaryens, you know, the Dothraki play very distinct from the Unsullied uh, that play very distinct from dragons and such. You know, they all can they don't really complement each other. They just are individually powerful. And so Ilio and a lot of the other Targaryen NCUs kind of function off of that, where they do have some minor synergies, but usually they're just kind of doing their own really cool thing. So like Ilio here, he can just straight up give you the replacement effect of healing wounds and then making guys weaken. So 
you could take this with Unsullied that are going to grind into combat. This is going to give you the ability to heal guys up and then make the counterattack well weaker because they're weakened. But frankly, he <laughs> really synergizes well with like Dothraki, who if they get into a prolonged combat, that's where they don't want to be because they don't have the best defense out there. So by making the opponent weakened, you're helping out a lot to um, just keep their survivability up. So I mean, you stick a Dothraki Screamer unit in there with a co and then they're backed up by Ilario here you know all of a sudden that unit becomes a lot more can can start sustaining a lot yeah. more combats and that matters who you're up against because like the alpha strike is nice but say you're up against a full like tank army of just like baratheon wardens and something like that the combat's gonna get prolonged regardless if you want it to or not because of just the nature of the opposing army you're against and here you know ilio will help you stay in that fight whereas usually you would kind of be in a disadvantage there and it's a flat three so you can kind of predict like you know how much healing you're doing it's not going to be a randomized effect effect so that's that's really nice and also final thing to note with him is that um uh i know i keep going on and on about this but you have counterplay with him as he's allowing you to take zones and replace the effect so if you are playing you know a, a baratheon that you know list that really heavily wants the crown for one reason or another then Ilio allows you to take that. And if you like, you don't want to use that panic effect, you can start healing guys up. If you want to take the tactics zone, but you don't need additional tactics cards to throw out, he's allowing you to take that zone to get that effect. So again, he's giving you the extra little bit of versatility by having by being a zone replacement. And then also he's giving you that denial of the of the enemy as well. All right. And now the moment you've all been waiting for, we've got Jora, who's a so low rider he's got his uh he's guaranteed to run faster with increased movement hit harder with an increase to hit he's got extra an extra wound this is the new the improved jorah mormont the wandering knight he's looking good sir he's looking good i mean he's still gonna get straight killed by you know most any unit he comes in contact with but he's three points so you know i don't really know what we're expecting there because like you know 12 guys versus a guy on a horse I mean, they're they're gonna kill that guy. He's he's but, gonna die. And I love the way uh, the scouting opening now. So it's targeting one enemy in long range until the end of the turn. Friendly units attacks on that enemy gain precision and may reroll any attack dice. That's amazing though. He's like super helpful in kind of skirting around the outsides of your force and setting up targets for you to smash well and that's exactly where he should be like this is jora a, a guy on a horse he does not want to he's not going to charge into combat by himself and just start cutting down a swath of guys is it too late to change solo rider to jora mormont a guy on a horse i mean you know chase just for you we'll make the special version of a guy on a horse i mean come uh, on sorry go i ahead. will note as well by the way that that is not a like a jora specific rule that is just a kind of a generic rule here like cavalry so oh, okay you know that's something to that's something to note so you might see that a little more often but that there's a difference there between it just being uh the cavalry rule because as you see this allows you to do a retreat action so if you manage to get into combat or charge for whatever reason and survive you can actually get yourself back out of that combat so but again jora here is not meant to like see combat himself he's just has some minor capabilities where if he does but yeah he's there all for that support piece of that scout openings which you can already see just throwing that onto some dothraki you know oh now we have precision and now we can reroll any of our attack dice so you know you can take him to do that you can take him to throw there uh into some unsullied there or you know even some storm crow guys you know who you know neutrals they don't have the best attack profile but they're very versatile but now he makes basically Jory here can make any unit a threat for the investment that you're getting. And the opponent here has to do something to deal with them. 
Uh, now, you could start trying to like crown zap him off the board, but you're really banking on that D3 coming up as a three. That's one of those reasons that the shift from two wounds to three wounds is so important, but also the shift in just baseline panic damage going from D3 plus one down to three means that's no longer a guaranteed thing. You only have a 33% chance here uh, per crown zap here, assuming it goes through on a five plus to actually just remove him. But again, we're talking three points. I mean, you're getting a mobile scout openings here for three points. I mean, it's it's a good value. And that brings us finally to the neutral faction. And so we got Vargo Hote here, the crippler. And so he continues to keep vicious. He's got his weakened resolve. Uh, but now at two points, he's got sadistic mutilation, where after this unit completes a melee attack, you may spend one weakened token from the defender if you destroy, if you do, destroy one infantry attachment in that unit. Oof. So you can start picking people out. So Vargo here just uh, got a couple buffs across the board. One, he was originally three points. He was dropped down to two. And then he gained the sadistic mutilation ability. Now, there's a bunch of reasons for these changes. But one, three-point attachments, when you start getting into that area, that is where you're really having to, like, they've got to be super, super strong because you're starting to get into, like, unit territory. And that time, it's almost always worth it just to get the extra bodies on the table than to really buff up a single unit uh, mm-hmm. to that capacity. So for that reason as well. So he got reduced down from three points to two uh, for those reasons, but also because of Vicious. Vicious, because Panic in general got reduced in damage, uh, its stock went a little bit further down versus like Sundering, which that stock actually went a bit up because now puncturing through armor is, you know, a big deal. So, you know, that combination of abilities that he's giving, you know, it, it basically got leveled out. But then also, you know, as I said before, one of the things we also wanted to do was give some flavor passes to things. And so giving him this sadistic mutilation ability, um, spoilers for, you know, a 20 year old, you know, series of books at this point. <laughs> uh, everyone kind of knows that he's kind of responsible for, you know, maiming one of the most popular characters in the entire franchise. I don't think Mance Raider uh, met him, though. Yeah, Chase, you uh, you live in a, a great world over there. <laughs> so, oh, wait, oh yeah, all right, fair enough. Jamie Lannister. But so your, your two-point investment here, you know, he's giving you some really nice things to the unit, but he's also giving you a really scary thing to the enemy. But noting that this is a character as well. So you're getting one of this guy in your army. And at two points, you know, it's a hefty investment and a limited investment of that. So, you know, it needs to be something scary and special. And here we are. All right. And then we've got the follower of the Red God, Jack and Hagar, at four points now instead of five with two choices now. So choosing a name has sort of been changed. And there's choosing a name and name given. So choosing a name, when Jacken activates... He may replace his influence ability with the influence ability of any friendly or enemy NCU until the end of the round or a name given influence while influencing a friendly infantry unit. It's melee attacks gain precision. So that's I like I like the kind of the dual options we're seeing here a lot. Well, and to be honest, those are a little rare, but we've been showcasing a lot of them off because, you know, they're cool and they're new. So you know, don't think that those are like super super common we've just been showcasing proportionally a lot of those uh with the uh the previews and what so jack in here is another example of someone who got an entire rework because the old effect was hitting a bunch of things that we really didn't like seeing that's mainly it was a lot of luck dependent dice rolls and it was creating those situations where he's either going to be super super effective or he's not really going to do that much and those can be fun in the game but we wanted to limit those because they can 
be kind of swingy to where someone's not going to have a good time. Either your opponent is like, he, it's going to be like your dice are going to be on fire and it's just going to be really good for you. Or he's going to do kind of nothing. And you're going to be like, man, why did I spend the points I, for this guy? I think it was at nationals last year. Oh no, sorry. It was in the beginner tournament before nationals last year where I was just playing a fun rattle shirt list. And I got him sniped on the, on the first turn. Well, I mean, that's that's what you get for playing free folk chase. That's true. It was one of those things where I'm playing this list, you're playing that. I was like, what are the odds? And it was like, oh, yeah, sadness. <laughs> so like uh, here with Jekton, we took him back to the drawing board here. And I'm a, I super love his effect here, like what he does. So first off, you can throw down um, infantry. You can get precision, which is nice to have. It gives you a, another kit to your toolbox of like punching through things. But really, it's that choosing a name effect that, you know, doubling down on influence effects. Now, of course, you can use this like you can build a list around this, because if you have a very powerful influence, like a Catlin Stark or, you know, something to that capacity, you can now double down on that. So, like, I can foresee a lot of Stark lists that are running a bunch of House Umber with Catlin and Jacken as your NCUs mm. to double down on, like, I'm going to start, you know, stacking, um, you know, rolling highest value attack die on units. Or, you know, you can bring him and just go, oh, cool. My opponent, you know, is bringing a really cool influence effect here. So I'm just going to take that away from them as well. But then again, if your if your opponent doesn't have anything cool and say you don't need to double down on your effect, you still have a generically useful effect here of giving a unit's melee attacks precision. There are obviously some combos that are better than others. I want to again stress out that, you know, um, doesn't stack a critical blow. So you just get that idea out of your head as we talked about earlier. But still, giving precision a way to just bypass defense saves, that's kind of one of those generically useful utilities that you're going to give to a unit that, you know, doesn't require a lot of other combos to set up and just be effective. And then we got Bloody Mummer Zorse Riders. And I love here what you've done with the Molly Armament. So before, if you attacked enemy in the flank or rear, they became weakened. Now you give some choices. Uh, and before, you also had disruption tactics where if you attack the flank or real, the enemy can't use or could not use orders or be the target of friendly tactics cards. You kind of pulled those into one ability, Molly Armaments. And so before you roll an attack die, you get to you get to select one. But if you're attacking the flank or rear, you get both of the following plus one attack die and critical blow or defender loses all abilities this turn. So this makes it a really versatile unit here. And it doesn't always have to just be going for the flank. Right. So this is a unit that their abilities got shifted and moved around, but their overall role has remained the same. So they were a disruption unit before, and they're still a disruption unit now. Uh, we showed these guys off, by the way, because we were showing our boy Vargo there, and we showed the Bloody Mummer skirmishers before. So we just figured we'd complete the trifecta uh, here <laughs> of showing you know him and the crew. But so like the Bloody Mummer Zorse Riders... This is an example of a unit that, uh, while they have their abilities have changed and moved around, their role has still remained the same. And so, you know, if you bought these guys, like I wanted a disruption cavalry unit, that's still what these guys are, and they still do it in largely the same way, but it's kind of just been streamlined to how they work. So now, if they're motley armaments, because representing the diverse array of weapons that they have in the unit, you can either push them into full blown attack, where they get the plus one attack die and critical blow which is going to make them one of the scarier attack die profiles uh, in the game at that point cost, because now you're throwing eight dice for critical blow. That's uh, that's pretty scary, noting they're on the uh, cavalry as well, so they're hard-hitting, they're fast, but they're also very kind of fragile because 5 plus 7 plus. Or you're shutting off abilities. Now that one is because it is because, uh, it's used to the end of the turn, it is strictly offensive in nature. So these guys don't have a lot of defensive tech um, when it comes to themselves. But they're there for disrupting and shutting down the enemy. So with that effect, you know, you're basically able to bypass 
a lot of your um, uh, defensive things that are coming to play. Like, you know, for example, set defense, which would usually take away all your charge bonuses and things like that. These guys bypass that. So in addition to that, you have effects like, you know, Counter-Strike or Agile, you know, these things here. So funny enough, the Bloody Mummer Zorse Riders are really, really good at shutting down Bloody Mummer skirmishers. But uh, hey, you know, they got they got the Zorses, you know, that's 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 why they, you know, they, that's why they make the big bucks. Uh, but then on top of that, you have Elusive Escape. So these guys can really impl- uh, implore those uh, hit and run tactics and leave the enemy weakened, which that's a big deal uh, for Vargo if you're running him as your commander. You definitely don't want, you know, uh, to have weakened tokens on you when you're playing against that. But then again, that's another generically useful. These guys can rush in, hit an enemy where they, you know, don't have any defenses, and then they can get out of there and leave these guys weakened. So you're taking away their offensive potential and having, you know, synergies of other units as well. So there's a lot here. Um, what a cool thing to surprise us all with in this uh, sort of uh, holiday period. There's a lot for us to kind of sit and digest. Well, so we figured it was the holiday break. You know, a lot of people are off of work for the next couple of weeks and whatnot. And this would be a perfect time for people to be able to sit there and digest through the new game modes, the new rules, and just kind of see more of the bigger picture that's trickling in here. You know, when we showcase more units and, uh, you know, more just overall the changes that are coming. And again, I want to say that we're still a ways away from it. You know, we're talking Q2, so April at the earliest here that these will be dropping. So, you know, I know people are getting excited, but that's why, you know, we're trickling this out now and letting people just see some previews here. And we'll continue to do so leading up to that. And as previously mentioned, the Greyjoys are, you know, they're coming out in Q1. And you've people have already seen, you know, the uh, we've shown off the tactics cards, units and some commanders here. You're you're seeing the changes that are going to be implemented across the other factions already incorporated into Greyjoys as their standard. Well, I look forward to further exploring these things and seeing what else maybe is uh, the visions in the flames to come. So thank you so much for making the time to come on here. I hope you have, you know, from me, but also from everyone listening from the whole community thank you so much for all your work and i hope you guys have a a restful holiday well thanks chase we appreciate that and again like we just want to give another you know shout out to all of our player base and everything that you know plays the game enjoys and everything this you know that's the reason we do all this stuff you know we want to make this the absolute best game and best hobby experience for you know all of our dedicated players out there and that's why we're constantly looking at ways to you know improve the game and make this just the best experience not just from a gameplay perspective but from a hobby aspect you know because again this is a this is a lifestyle thing you know it's not just you know you're getting together and you're playing games but there's much more to it than that you know you have communities that built up around this you have friendships that build up around this you know it's not just it's not so simple as just like oh we're just going to throw some miniature and slam some trays against each other that's so true uh, but it's been really reassuring seeing where you're taking the game and uh, i know we're hyped so if you're listening guys uh, let us know in the comments below what you're most excited for what you think of the changes and in the meantime hope you get your miniatures on the table <laughs> Thank you.